We're in John's Gospel again, and uh, things have been, we are in a section of John's Gospel where the, the conflict with the chief priests and the Pharisees has begun to heat up. Uh, we're going to be in John chapter 8, uh, starting at verse 21. Uh, and uh, today John is once again going to peel back the curtains of reality and show us uh, some pretty astonishing things. So could I ask you to please, if you would, and you're able to stand one more time out of respect for the reading of God's word. Uh, listen now, this is the inerrant word of God. And so he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, Will he kill himself, since he says, where I am going, you cannot come? And he said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And so they said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, Just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing of my own authority but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And as he was saying these things, many believed in him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that it shows us astonishing realities beyond our wildest comprehension. Lord, we pray that your word would be convicting to us, that we would see in it uh, that you have sent Jesus to be an emissary of peace and of light so that we might know you, so that we might know your love for us, so that we might know the futility of trying to work out or work for our own salvation, Lord. And we pray that you would uh, convict us and, 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 and comfort us, Lord, with the knowledge that you have done it all for us and that all that we do is trust in your finished work, Lord. Lord, we know we know this intellectually, but we always need to hear it again. By the time the week rolls by, we become functionally works. Uh, we functionally become people who work for salvation, and we need you to refresh our minds in the gospel, Lord. So we pray, Lord, that you would do that today for us so that we might worship you in the way that we should. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. So ever since, um, ever since I was a kid, I've loved science fiction. Um, books, movies, novels, and whatnot, mainly because of just the, the glimpse of these astonishing new realities that it gives us, that these worlds that are just beyond beauty and beyond power, beyond anything that we experience here on life. And I still remember vividly 
what it was like to be a 12-year-old boy in 1977 in the movie theater when out of nowhere this imperial I-class star destroyer came from over the top of our heads and just kept going and going and going in the first opening scene of the first Star Wars movie. There, let me tell you this, for all of you who have raised with CGI and raised with computer-generated graphics, there is no way to explain to you how reality-shattering that moment was for us. There had never been anything like that before. And when that ship came over the top of our heads... It was like we had been instantly transported and made aware of this entirely new world above that was beyond our wildest comprehension. And I think even, even more than that, I really love stories that talked about uh, multidimensional parallel worlds where Stephen King novels, for example, where there's a boy who would flip back and forth between parallel realities. So, not so much a world that's beyond us in outer space or somewhere far away, but a whole other world that's bigger and broader and more expansive and more substantive than our world that's surrounding us, that's just beyond our, the, the capacities of our mind to comprehend it. And as I got older, uh, I was started reading um, books by uh, quantum physicists written at a lay level for non-scientists like me that discussed, that talked about that the cutting edge of science is that that's really a reality now. We know that there's a multi-dimensional reality that's expansive beyond our three-dimensional time and space that we exist in and that our minds are able to comprehend. We know now for a fact that there is a broader multi-dimensional world that we are quarantined within, more or less, that is the real world, a world of, of, of incomprehensible beauty, power, light beyond our ability to see and comprehend. Um, and so imagine uh, my shock and surprise when I converted to Christianity to find out that that's pretty much, in a large, in a large way, that's what the Bible has been talking about the entire time. That there really is a broader, ex- more expansive, invisible world outside of this little world that we live in and that we're used to, that in fact the real world, the real substantive world, is the unseen world, the world of the heavenly realm where God and the angels, uh, they live. And so, you know, those, all those stories, all those science fiction stories, books, new movies, novels, whatever, they're all, they're all tapping into this subconscious knowledge that we all have of the broader world. And the reason it appeals to us is because we all know that there's truth to it, that it really does exist. And in the Christian faith, we can acknowledge that. It's, a, it's beautiful. It's not, we're not just in this one little tiny cruel world where life feeds on life and the, the powerful conquer the weak, but we belong to a greater, bigger, deeper more expansive reality where uh, there are supernatural beings, where there is a war between the forces of darkness and light. And best of all, there's been an ongoing rescue mission by the forces of light to rescue enemies, really, from the world of darkness below. And that the main story of the Bible is really about that rescue operation, the forces of light all culminating in its, 
in its, in its, in its capstone story of an emissary of peace sent from the upper realms of light into our dying and decaying world, offering peace and offering a salvation to even the enemies of God. And so in our story today, you might not have heard that while I was reading it right off the bat, but that is Jesus is, 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 giving a, is dropping hints of this on the Pharisees and John is really pulling back the curtains of reality to give us a glimpse of this big story. I think we listen to the gospel text, I think we are conditioned by our culture to think about the ancient, ancient peoples, the ancient world, what Jerusalem was like, what Rome was like, what the Pharisees were like. And so we kind of unconsciously, we, we cut this off at the level of, here are religious men having religious disputes and who's right, who's wrong, who's relying on law, who's relying on grace. But there's, although that's true, there's a much bigger and much broader reality going on. And so the main idea, the thesis, the big idea, what John wants us to understand more than anything in this chapter is that Jesus came as an emissary from the world of light on a suicide mission to save the dead. That Jesus came as an emissary from the world of light on a suicide mission to save the dead. He came as an emissary of light. The Bible teaches that there are right now two worlds or ages that are coexisting, our dying world and the upper world above us that Jesus came from, uh, and to save the dead, what makes the world, uh, what makes our world the realm of death is that it's populated by spiritually dead people, and the problem with spiritually dead people is that they don't know they're spiritually dead, and the third point a suicide mission. While most gods expect their people to sacrifice and die for them, the thing that distinguishes Christianity from every other major religion is that God voluntarily sacrificed and died for his people. And so we'll go through this with those three things in mind. The emissary from the world of light coming to save the dead and the suicide mission of God. So first, the emissary from the world of light. Look at verse 23. So he said to them, you are from below and I am from above. You are of this world and I am not of this world. You know, the the two world concept, I think it's so hard for us to get a mental grasp on on, on it because the worlds are so fundamentally different. It's not... It really isn't like a science fiction movie where there's a, a peaceful world or a planet and then our planet. There are, they are fundamentally different in what they are, in their reality, um, in everything about it. And so the problem from us, for us trying to comprehend this world above, it's that it's more beautiful than our ability to understand it. So much so that in the Bible when God talks about the age to come or the heavenly realms or things like that, he always talks in metaphors because he's just not able to explain it to us in a way that our time-bound, three-dimensional minds can even understand. And so when he says streets of gold and, you know, decorated with 
precious jewels and rivers of life and trees healing the nation and things like that, those are all symbols for something that is far greater than our ability to even latch on to. Um, you know, uh, I tried to think all day of something that might compare to that reality. The closest thing I could get to was... was um, the elven halls of Valinor from J.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings and the undying lands of Ea. But even that doesn't really capture it because that's another physical place, even in the realm of J.R.R. Tolkien. But it's the most fantastic place that I can you know, think of it from the world of science fiction. But still, it doesn't compare because it's the world, the heavenly realms are on a magnitude different order of reality. They're not just qualitatively, quantitatively different. They are foundationally different order of reality. And, and for the world of death below, the, our problem in comprehending that is that we're desensitized to it. You know, there's a, in the movie The Blues Brothers, uh, Elwood Blues, he's got an apartment that's like right outside the train in Chicago. And so he gets, his brother Jake gets out of jail and he goes and picks him up they come back to the apartment and Elwood's in there and the train is coming six inches outside of his window and shaking the entire apartment. He doesn't even notice. Jake, on the other hand, is freaking out because it's so loud. What's the difference? Elwood's lived there so long that it's become normal to him. He doesn't even notice it anymore. Like if you live in the flight path of San Diego, at first you notice every plane that comes over, you notice it, but after a while... Even now, there's planes going by us right out here. Even now, you just tune out to it. We've become desensitized to the reality of, of death and brokenness in our world. Death, disease, famine, war, divorce, estrangement, broken relationships, hurt feelings, heartache. None of those things are natural. All of those things are consequences of the evil in the world. They're not how things are supposed to be. But for us, that deep, deep level of brokenness is normal. And so when we try to compare these two worlds, we just, we're, we're handicapped on each end. On the one side, the world of, of light that Jesus has come from, from the realms of heaven, is so far beyond our ability to comprehend it uh, that we just can't. And on the other hand, the world that we live in uh, is so infected with brokenness and with pain and with death and we're so used to it that the gulf between them is astonishingly great. But here's the point for all of that background. The amazing thing about it is is that what this story is telling us and what the gospel is telling us is that into our world of death has come this emissary from the world of light above. It's better than any science fiction story you could ever even attempt to write. I was thinking about it all day for something comparable. Nothing came to mind because honestly, the story that the Bible tells is so far above and beyond that, it's so much more beautiful. Look at verse 24 to 26. I told you that you would die in your sins for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And so they said to him, who are you? And Jesus said to them, just what I've been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge. But he who sent me is true and I declare 
to the world what I have heard from him. The first primary mission of Jesus in his first coming was to be an emissary of peace. And when he talks in language like that about, I declare to the world what I have heard from him, when he says, I only speak that message that the Father has given to us, he's talking the message of salvation, the offer of peace that the upper realm has given to us in the realm of death. There's a, uh, there's a great story in the Old, Old Testament. It's actually in uh, Isaiah, in a break in the book of Isaiah, where it goes into a historical interlude where Hezekiah is king over Jerusalem and the Assyrians send their emissary of peace. His name is the Rub Shaka. It's his official military title. And so he marches up with his horse, thousands of troops behind him, and he taunts Hezekiah. He says, he says hey, we'll give you 2,000 horses if you can put anybody on them, knowing that they don't, even, they don't have any defenses. And basically when he's taunting Jerusalem, he's taunting Hezekiah saying, saying, we're offering you terms of peace. That is, come out to us. We'll let you stay here for a little while. You'll eat your own vine. You'll drink your own cisterns. And then we'll send you to another land that is beautiful, that has flowing rivers, that's just as good as your land, and you'll live there in peace. Don't believe Hezekiah can save you. And then he says, and if you don't, then we'll come back and we will obliterate you. And so the emissary of peace would come and offer peace to the people like the Rev Shaka did. But Jesus, as an emissary from the heavenly realms, is even better than that for a lot of reasons. Whereas the Rev Shaka was offering amnesty um, <clears throat> and safety, Jesus comes and offers we who naturally belong and rightfully belong to the world of death below. He offers us not just amnesty, but forgiveness for our sins. He offers us citizenship in the realms above. He even offers us family relationships. The Lord God promises to adopt us and make us his sons and daughters. And when he says things like, the father who sent me is true, he means true in the sense of reliable. He's saying, this offer that I am now bringing, Jesus standing in the temple with all the Pharisees around him, thinking that he's uh, you know, outnumbered, and he's, he is in, instead this emissary of light bringing them this offer of peace. He is saying, my father is trustworthy and reliable, and you can bank on the promises that he has promised you. The second coming of Jesus will be different. And he hints at it just briefly when he says, he says, I have much to say about you and much to judge. Notice he doesn't say, I have much to say to you. He's not talking about a conversation. He's saying, there's coming a time when I will have much to say about you and what I say about you is going to concern judgment. There's another, another scene of, of an emissary of peace sent out in the movie Gladiator in the opening scene where General Maximus uh, is standing in the front lines of battle and the, op- the opening scene, he comes up to one of his generals and he basically says, how long has he been gone? They send an, they've sent an, em- an emissary of peace to offer peace terms to this Germanic tribe 
And all around them outside are these, are, are, is the Roman war machine, which greatly just is, is overpowering to the Germanic tribes that they're about to go to war with. It's, there's, just, there's no contest. It's obvious that these people cannot win against these overwhelming forces. But they send an emissary of peace in to say, here are peaceful terms. Come to terms with these peace and, and we won't obliterate you with war. And so Maximus is standing there with his general and he says, how long has he been gone? The guy says, about two hours. And just then uh, you hear a German guy yell out, you're all dogs. And then a horseman comes riding through the troops. And as he gets closer, they find out that the horseman is missing his head. It's their emissary. And Maximus looks at his friend and says, they say no. Their answer to the overture of peace is no. And then Maximus next says, on my command, unleash hell. And they do. Catapults, military machinery, cavalry, uh, Roman imperial troops, the Praetorian Guard, everything just unleashes on these Germanic tribes and they're, they're obliterated. The point of the story is that the emissary of peace Jesus has come on his first coming to offer terms of peace to his enemies in the realm of darkness. And it's a, it is a limited time offer. The second coming will not be that. The second coming will be judgment. And it's a judgment that no one, no one can stand in. And so, summary. Now we get bogged down in our ancient history, our understanding of Rome, and we lose sight of the big picture here. This is not a religious dispute happening between religious authorities or between rabbis. This is the picture of an emissary sent from the realms of heaven with a peace offering uh, of eternal light and full citizenship in the heavenly realms above. Now, who in their right minds would refuse that? Do they take it? They don't take it. Why not? Second point. Second point to save the dead. Well, the short answer to that question is who in their, uh, the question, who in their right mind wouldn't take that offer of, of being freed from this awful world of death and pain and given full citizenship and family relation in the world above? The short answer to that isn't crazy people, it's, it's dead people. And not physically dead people, but spiritually dead people. And the problem, problem with spiritually dead people is spiritually dead people don't know that they're spiritually dead. Do you remember the movie The Sixth Sense, 1999? I'm, not gonna, I'm gonna spoil it for you, but it's been 17 years, so if you haven't seen it yet, that's your fault, not mine. So Bruce Willis is a psychiatrist and he's dealing with this boy who believes that he sees dead people. At the very beginning of the movie, there's this scene where there's a robbery and then it moves on. And at the end of the film, lo and behold, Bruce Willis finds out that he has been dead the whole time. In the robbery, he was shot and killed. And this boy who he thinks he's been helping, who actually does see dead people, he's one of the dead people that this boy sees. And it helps him to move on to the next realm. And that the premise of the movie is that throughout the whole thing, Bruce Willis doesn't understand that he's dead. And so it is with, spiritually, with the spiritually dead. And a lot of that is because spiritual life, in a big way, is an experiential thing, right? If you're a Christian, 
you've known, most of us, not all of us, some people have grown up in the church and they don't really know when they were saved or not, but many of us have come to faith in a, at a, and we know it at a, at a specific time and so we know experientially the difference between being spiritually dead and then bang, being spiritually li- alive and we can contrast that. But people who have been spiritually dead since birth, since that's how we are born into the world, there's nothing to contrast it to and so they have no idea what the difference would be or anything to judge it against. Spiritual death is just their normal, was our normal. And so, rather than just going into a doctrinal um, abstract discussion about spiritual life, and let's look at what spiritual death looks like. How would you know? How do you know if you're spiritually dead? And I think the most popular answer to that Um, maybe not so much anymore, but I think for historically, especially in, in America, when America um, was more puritanical for sure, was the reason you can, the, what, the number one indicator for people who are spiritually dead are the evil or very sinful people or people that are caught up in obvious, open, open sin. And there's some truth to that. There's, a part, there's, there's, there's some truth to the fact that the libertine or... Um, the person that, that, that uh, Paul is talking about in Romans 1 who has just given, you know, given themselves over to all kinds of sin and, uh, and sensual pleasure. There's some truth to that, but the most common indicator and the one presented here for us is that the number one indicator of spiritual death in some, is somebody who believes themselves to be religious but is relying on trying to be or do good for their own salvation. And that's counterintuitive because the fallen human heart is, that's the default setting of the fallen human heart to believe that the law or being good is something that we do in order to get God's favor. It was certainly true about these guys, the Pharisees that Jesus is arguing with they believed that they were being saved by their works. Um, and their foundational belief, as we've been talking about, as we've been going through these chapters, is that God gave the Jews the law as a means for salvation and that as they kept it, they would be approved by God and that would signal the Messiah to come. For an example of how, let, let me give you an example of where that kind of thinking goes, specifically with these guys. Last week, Charles taught that uh, he talked about the, uh, Israel that were wandering in the, in the desert. And while they were wandering in the desert, there was, God gave them a pillar of fire by night to guide them and a pillar of smoke during the day. And Charles taught us last week that that pillar of fire was representative. It was a picture of Jesus leading his people out of the wilderness of sin and death and into the light of the world. The Pharisees, on the other hand, believed, and we, this is from... There's a book called Wisdom of Solomon, which is an apocryphal book. It's not part of the Bible. The Roman church believes it is part of the Bible. Um, But things like this about it show us that it rightfully is not in the Bible because it gets things wrong. And Wisdom of Solomon, chapter 18, equates that pillar of fire in the wilderness to the imperishable law. In other words, the Jews believed, the Pharisees believed, the people at this time, the holy men at this time, they, they believed that that 
pillar of fire didn't relate to Jesus leading his people out or to salvation won for us by, by God, but it related to the imperishable law and that they had the law and that by keeping the law, that light would then, then they would have that light to show to the nations and that God would love them, send the Messiah and, and everyone would enter into heaven. And Catholic theologian uh, and commentator Ray Brown lists off all kinds of OT or all kinds of symbols in the Old Testament that the Jews equated to law. And a lot of them were things that Jesus has been saying, no, that means me. The temple, I am the true temple. The manna in heaven, I am the true bread from heaven, not the law. Um, I am the water of life. The law is not the water of life. They had all, their whole understanding of religion was wrapped around the fact that the law was central and their keeping it was central. So all these images from the Old Testament, their interpretive grid was all centered around understanding all those things to be pointing to the law and keeping the law. And so imagine what happens when Jesus shows up and says, no, that's about me. No, it's not about the law. It's about me providing all these things for you. To them, when he said that, when Jesus shows up and says, I am the light of the world, it's total nonsense to them. Why? Because their foundational beliefs, their foundational presuppositional beliefs were that the purpose of the law was as a means to get to heaven. And so then they were unable to see, they were spiritually blinded to the truth about Jesus, whom, when he came, then when he said these things, they already knew who he was. He was an imposter. And so they outrightly rejected him because they were dead spiritually, blinded spiritually, and unable to see um, what he was trying to reveal to them. And on top of that, there's another danger on top of that, is that that's what the fallen heart wants to believe. We have a tendency to believe the things that we want to, right? There's our, I read an article, this guy called this thing the girlfriend syndrome or the boyfriend syndrome. About, and he used this parable about this guy named Frank who liked this girl and was c- completely sure that she liked him back. And he goes about his day and everything in his day is signaling the fact that, that this girl actually likes somebody else. So like Frank gets up in the morning and he sees, you know, Julie and, and Billy riding a bike together. And he thinks to himself, oh, wow, they're just riding a bike together. That's great. And it goes on and on like this. And eventually he has him looking down into his alphabet soup. And there spelled out in the alphabet soup is Julie loves Billy. And he says, oh, that must be a mistake. And he churns his soup up. The point of the parable is that we have as humans a tendency to believe what we want to be true more than we want to believe reality, even more than we will believe the evidence that's put in front of us. And so that makes a dangerous position. If there's anybody who does not know Jesus, is it possible that some of your opinions about Jesus are based on what you want to believe to be true rather than what actually is. 
And is it possible that you back that up with, all, with arguments that aren't as strong as you would hope they are? For example, there was, we have a guy, this guy commented on our Facebook page. We had a, a post from a couple weeks ago talking about the resurrection. A guy posted something to the effect of, have you ever talked to somebody who came back from the dead? No, it doesn't happen. And that was it. So I, learned, I, I responded to him, and I learned this from one of our professors at seminary, Dr. Horton. I responded, and I said, hey, hey, bro, thanks for the comment. Could you, just curious, could you tell me, out of the four evidences for the resurrection that scholars debate, could you tell me which one you think is weakest and why? So far, no answer. Crickets. And, and the answer is going to be, there are, he's going to say something like, there are no evidences, it's just silly nonsense. And the tr- but that, what that flushes out is that he's not even aware that there are arguments for the faith. He's not even aware that there are reasonable arguments for Jesus. And so, here's all I want to say about that. Given the high stakes, and given the offer of peace that the Bible is talking about, wouldn't it be reasonable to re-examine some of those things? Some of the things maybe your professors taught you and re-examine them in light of the best Christian arguments for the resurrection of Jesus, for the deity of Jesus, for the salvation of Christ. So, summary. Jesus sent, was sent into the lower world as an emissary of peace, not to save the spiritually sick, but to save the spiritually dead. Uh, And the most common indicator of spiritual death is the belief that trying to do or be good is what gets you into heaven. But if that's not true, then what is it? What does get you into heaven? How do you get spiritual life? And that brings us to the last point, the suicide mission. You know, John is the king of irony. He does this technique in his writing where he has somebody ask a ridiculous question so he can set them up and then answer it. But sometimes he has people ask questions that are far truer than they even understand themselves to be saying. For example, do you remember in chapter 7, we talked about um, when Jesus said almost the same thing he says in this chapter. Jesus said, you will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. And the Pharisees answer, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? And the irony is that they meant that as an insult. They meant that, oh, he's going to run away. He can't be here in, 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 the, in the fast lane with us, with, with the movers and shakers. So he's going to go off into the country, into, out into the rural areas and, and teach those Greeks disdain on their, on their mouth. And what actually happens? John is using that as almost a prophetic statement to point out that that happened, that the covenant was taken away from the religious elite and given to the humble. And so what they thought was an insult to Jesus was a condemnation of their own wicked pride. And in this chapter, he says almost the same thing. In verse, look at 21 and 22, Jesus says, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sins and where I am going you cannot come. And the Pharisees say, will he kill himself? 
since he says, where I am going, you cannot come. And the irony is, again, they mean this as an insult. In Jewish tradition, to kill yourself meant immediately to Sheol, immediately to hell. And so they're saying, oh, well, is he going to kill himself? If that's true, if you're going to the lowest ring of hell, certainly we're not going to be following you. Ha, ha, ha. The play here, again, the literary beauty of this passage is, and, the, and the play off each other is astonishing. They're talking about his death and assuming that he's going to be in the lowest realms of hell. And he's talking about his death and where they cannot come, which is where they desperately want to go but aren't. And he's offering them this offer of peace to say, this is, this is how you get there. And so what actually happens, though, they mean it as an insult that he's going to commit suicide and it's going to land him in hell. But what actually happens is that Jesus voluntarily lays down his life to save his enemies, even many of these men that he's face to face with right now. We know on the first day of the church, Pentecost, 3,000 came to faith. Not much later, 6,000, even amongst the Pharisees, came to faith. And so, these men who are mocking him, his enemies, of which we have to include ourselves as part of that prior to coming to Jesus, the answer then to what gives spiritual life uh, is also the thing that makes Christianity different from every other world religion. Let's listen to two, two more important verses. Verse 24, you are from below and I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And verse 28, so Jesus said to them, when you have lifted the son of, up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. Now these two verses teach us some very important things. The first is that in both of these verses, when Jesus says, I am he, the he has been added by the translators. It doesn't say, he just says, he says, for unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. And when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am. We talked about this before in Exodus chapter 3 when God appears to Noah and gives, or give to Moses and gives Moses his covenantal name, his memorial name forever. He says to Moses, my name is I am that I am. And so Jesus from the very beginning of John's gospel has been throwing this out there. I am the water of life. I am the bread from heaven. And as we go along, he's becoming more and more overt in, that st- in, in this saying. He's going, to, he's going to top out at the end of this chapter, at chapter 8. But right here, what he's saying to these Pharisees is, not just that you believe, not just that you believe that there is an emissary of light here, but that emissary is the very God who you claim to worship. And what's important about that is that what Jesus has done for us on the cross is something that no 
man could do. If we look to Jesus as a good teacher, or we look to Jesus as a moral teacher, or we even look to Jesus uh, as an ascended human being, he would not be able to accomplish what he came to do, which was to die for the sins of the entire world. And also he hints at the end that the Father never leaves him because he always does what pleases the Father. Without being God as well as man, he would never be able to perfectly keep the law and therefore fulfill the requirements of the law for us. It required God to do that. And so he's telling the Pharisees that this is not, I'm not just anybody, I am the memorial covenantal name of God. He is the divine bearer of the divine name. The other purpose of his descent is to be lifted up. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, which is John's shorthand for the cross and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. And the point is that dead people cannot make themselves alive. So the living God comes to make a way for his people, and only God can accomplish this. And three, look at the condition that he gives. When he says, and he warns them that they're going to die in their sin, that the clock is going to run out, that they will be out of time, he gives them the condition. He says, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. He could have said anything there. What a golden opportunity it would have been for him to say, unless you fulfill the law. What a golden opportunity it would have been for him to say, unless you consent to the Holy Spirit's working within you. What if he, he could have said, unless by your good works you become worthy of the merit of Christ, which will then be given to you. I mean, there's a lot of religious constructions that we as people, that men, from the fallen nature of our hearts, always desiring to work for our salvation. Lots of theological systems that people have come up with. But here's what Jesus says. He says, unless you believe. Unless you believe. You know, because that's really the only thing we can do. Belief in Jesus means trust. It means looking outside of ourselves and placing our trust in what Jesus has done for us rather than trusting in our own works. It is, it is a faith that looks, the, the whole purpose of faith, the whole purpose of the biblical concept of faith is not faith that Jesus was a good teacher or faith that his, you know, that his instruction was right, but, but looking outside of ourselves and trusting in what he has done for us. That's the only qualifier he gives. That's the only condition for life. Isn't that good news? And they should call it that. The law is not a means of salvation, but a means to show our need of grace. And so, the million dollar question, 
How do you know that you have spiritual life? Is that you're, you're able to say, I trust in Jesus. I know I'm, my works, if I'm judged based on what I've done, man, I'm in trouble. I will not stand. I rightly belong to the realm of death. But there is one who came from the world above who lived a perfect righteous life for me and has given me credit for all of his righteousness. And I'm putting my trust in that. Come what may. Because that's the only way I would ever be able to make it. Let's conclude with this. Maybe the most important verse in the whole chapter is the very last one where it says, and basically, as he was still talking, many believed in him. Keep in mind here, he's not doing miracles. It's not many saw the miracles and believed. He's just talking. He's explaining this. He's preaching, pronouncing this life that he has brought and pronouncing the only condition on it to look outside of yourself, to abandon this foolish idea that works will save you and trust in me. And as the words are coming out of his mouth, supernaturally the spirit is at work bringing life to the people in the audience that are listening to him. There's not anything that you do. You can pray, but it's something that God does for us and to us. And so I pray, if anyone is here doesn't know, never heard of this before, or this is the first time that you've ever heard that you cannot earn your salvation by works, but only through faith in Jesus. I pray that that would be happening right now in your mind and in your heart that you would be saying, I believe it. Not because you've thought it all through and you're so smart, but because the Holy Spirit has given you that knowledge and that faith the way he has for everybody else in this room who believes in him. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, um, this beautiful gospel of John is so overtly evangelistic that almost every section of it is a fully contained, beautiful message of the gospel from every different angle all of them facets of the diamond expressing to us, sharing with us, with your creation, your eternal love, expressing your glory, inviting us into fellowship with you. And so we thank you for this word today, Lord, that is an astonishingly beautiful picture of the gospel. Lord, as we prepare our hearts for the table, as we prepare our hearts for the place where you come down from heaven to meet us, Lord, I pray, I pray that your spirit, Lord, for anyone here who doesn't know you, Lord, I pray that today would be the day of salvation. And Lord, for all of us who do know you, I pray that you would help us to understand the enormity of what has occurred and what you have done to bring us to yourself Lord, we take it for granted all the time. We are ungrateful and we sink into unbelief. And then we start making decisions based on our unbelief and our ingratitude. And before we know it, we are 
functionally denying you and being functional agnostics and atheists, Lord, even though we know better. So, Father, we pray that you would help us to remember these things in everyday life so that we would be glorifying you, so that we would be speaking of you, so that when we opened our mouth, it would just, praise would just naturally flow out of it, Lord. And please bless us and strengthen us in all this. We love you, praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.